0: Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 104, and I'm drinking Maker's Mark. With each episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. I chose to feature Maker's Mark for this episode because it's a famous brand and therefore has been on my list of spirits to cover for the show. What moved it up to the top of the list was the luck I had in finding a copy of the book Maker's Mark, my autobiography, by Bill Samuels Jr. at my local Powell's bookshop. And as an aside, I love Powell's, by the way. It's a Portland institution. Their drinks book section is several shelves wide, and you can always be sure to find older treasures like this autobiography, as well as just different random books right next to brand new cocktail books. So I love Powell's. I also chose Maker's Mark in part because of my friend Tom, who also served as inspiration for Episode 5 featuring Baron Jaeger. Tom is a Maker's Mark fan to be sure, and always had a bottle on hand for parties. So, the bottle I have for the tasting is a standard 750 milliliters. Maker's Mark is bottled at 45% ABV or alcohol by volume, making it 90 US proof. And this bottle retails at about $28 US. The bottle is iconic, and it's won many design awards and been recognized for the overall packaging. There's a story to the bottle design I'll get into in history, but as for a description, it's clear glass, a generally squared shape that's wider than deep. The shoulder is the widest part of the bottle, and then it slopes gently up to a tall neck. The neck is more than a handle to carry the bottle by, as the bottle is capped with a cork stopper, but the most recognizable part would be the red sealing wax that covers the top and then drips down the neck as tendrils. The glass mold includes the Maker's Mark logo mark, the actual mark of the brand, which is a circle with a star at the left and a letter S and the Roman numeral four. More on that in history as well. The printed label is simple. It's textured parchment colored paper with black ink for the word mark maker's mark, the circle star S Roman numeral 4 actual mark, then the text Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, handmade, distilled, aged and bottled by the Maker's Mark Distillery Inc., Star Hill Farm, Loretto, Kentucky, USA. Proof and volume information follow. The bottle label wraps the sides of the bottle as well, and each side includes a bit of history of the brand, but I'll dive a bit deeper than what the bottle states. But first, let's get through the wax and open this up. The key thing with opening a bottle of Maker's Mark, and this is the first bottle I've ever opened, I've had it before, but I've never bought a new bottle to open, is there is a pull tab that is covered in wax as well, but you should grab the pull tab and and pull that off. Uh, there's stories of people not seeing the pull tab and not knowing how to get through the wax and carving it off with a knife and all kinds of, of things. The pull tab should cleanly cut it so that it will stay on the bottle while it's open. All right, so let's give it a try. Here we go. It's nice and easy. Came off. Oh, it's sticky. So it's adhe- it's got adhesive on the underside of the, the pull strip. Anyway. See if we get a pop. Oh, I was wrong, it's a screw top. It's not a cork stopper. That's efficient. Okay, let's go for a pour. That's a healthy glug, glug, glug. Um, as always, I am tasting using a clean Glencairn glass. It's a whiskey nosing glass, ideally suited for this purpose. It's tulip shape, allows you to see the spirit. Smell the spirit and, of course, taste the spirit. And in the glass, the spirit looks the same color as it does in the bottle. It's a warm, rich, light, golden amber, bourbon color, essentially. And on the nose, I definitely pick up the wood from the barrel. It doesn't really have bite, I expected more of the ethanol because this is a 90 proof spirit, but I don't get that very sharply on the nose. Probably a little bit of vanilla and the brand says there's wheat prevalent on the nose. Perhaps. I'm not in the habit of just nosing pure wheat. I probably need to honestly do some sensory training and just smell a lot of different things so I can recognize them and then pick them out of spirits, but I'll trust that the brand says there's wheat prevalent on the nose. Now let's go for a taste. <coughs> yeah. You can feel the punch of the uh, 90 proof spirit there. Also, I'm recording this at seven in the morning just because of scheduling. But hey, I work from home, so I'm not driving anywhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's got a good flavor. I just need to wake up my palate. Let's go for another. A hint of uh, sweetness. Definitely tastes some nice vanilla. It's rather soft. Um probably caramel. Yeah, a little more caramel on the on the finish, I think. Let's go for another. Overall, I do get some of the burn from the proof. And actually. A slight numbing of the, the lips and palate. I don't know if that's only the ethanol or some of the rest of the, the spirit. I've experienced this in tasting scotch with another couple of friends of mine. I've been on a, a video podcast of theirs and we tried a scotch that really was just antiseptic in its effect. It was not necessarily the proof. something else and it just gave you a, a real kind of numbing effect and I'm getting that quite a bit here on my palate with Maker's Mark. Flavor's good, but the feeling it's, I don't know, maybe it's just the proof, but I definitely can, can feel the fact I've been drinking just a neat spirit. All right, we'll let that mellow on my palate as we dive into the history. Maker's Mark is the result of a fourth generation distiller, nay, sixth generation, who realized the product his family made simply wasn't that great. He wanted a better whiskey, something smoother, and bet everything to make it so. He was so committed, he actually burned the family's 170-year-old recipe, stating, nothing that we need to craft a truly new and soft-spoken bourbon. We will have to start from scratch. This ceremonial burning of the recipe also apparently set fire to the drapes, and thus wasn't mentioned much in the founder's presence thereafter. So who, might you ask, was the distiller that shunned family heritage to improve it? A man named Bill Samuels. Starting back at the beginning, the Samuels family was of Scottish descent, and that's one of the reasons that the word whiskey on the bottle for Maker's Mark is spelled without an E as a nod to their family heritage. The Samuels family began distilling whiskey in what was then the western frontier of the USA, the Wilds of Kentucky. This was Robert Samuels, the great-great-great-grandfather of Bill Samuels. In 1840, T.W. Samuels, the grandson of Robert Samuels, erected the family's first commercial distillery near Samuels Depot, Kentucky, on the family farm, and an area that bore the family name. By the time Bill Samuels was in control of the T.W. Samuels distillery, he admitted that the whiskey made wasn't that good, He described it as pedestrian whiskey. Part of this may have been due to the fact that post-prohibition in the United States, American whiskey was generally of poor quality, having been rushed to market to satiate demand without proper time to age. And a lot of the intellectual property was lost in the industry as well. Prohibition's grand experiment had lasting effects on the global spirits business, and the knowledge of how to make a good spirit was lost by many. And much of the American whiskey made even prior to Prohibition was a tough, rough spirit, the kind often depicted in movies with cowboys grimacing to down what would have been decidedly viewed as a man's drink. Bill Samuels lumped his family's product in with this lot, and in 1943, Bill Samuels got out of the business, determined to risk everything on what he considered to be the single idea that there was a way to craft a bourbon whiskey that would be smooth as velvet, full-flavored, and easy on the palate. And shortly thereafter is when he set the drapes on fire in front of his family and associates. However, that's honestly a bit of a romanticized brand history version of things. While indeed the recipe was burned and this timeline is correct, it leaves out certain aspects that are interesting to the complete story of the birth of this brand. Bill Samuels was rather well-to-do and purportedly living off the income from property and the family farm his wife Margie managed. He seemed to be getting in the way around the house and Margie needed him to have a job or a hobby and a better tasting bourbon would be it. So it said the Samuels family was living in Bardstown, Kentucky at the time on Whiskey Row, amongst other recognized names in the bourbon business. And though competitors, they were all friendly, and thus Bill Samuels assembled an advisory panel made up of friends and colleagues from such brands as Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, Pappy Van Winkle, the man himself, and Heaven Hill Brands, many actual family descendants of these famous founders as well. This panel helped him determine what a soft-spoken bourbon could be and how to craft it. They agreed to three main points which would serve to avoid the use of new-at-the-time technology in bourbon production. These were the avoidance of the hammer mill for grinding rain, It's said that the hammer mill exploded the grain, creating a tiny bit of heat that might taint the flavor, make it a little bitter perhaps. Also, the avoidance of the pressure cooker, because it overcooked the grains other than corn, and avoiding kiln-dried wood for barrel staves. The barrels was an interesting point. A representative from Missouri-based Independent Stave Company found that naturally dried wood that was left out in the air for up to 18 months or so had a natural reduction in the tannins in the wood, and this helped mellow the whiskey during maturation. So from here, in 1953, Bill Samuels found and purchased the old Burke's Distillery for $35,000, which had been closed since Prohibition, a small old distillery in picturesque Happy Hollow near Loretto, Kentucky, that contained a historic distillery building fed by clear, clean limestone springs. Small, I think, is a relative description. The distillery itself may have been small, but the property encompassed 200 acres of land. The land was renamed Star Hill Farm, and Bill and family worked for several years to rebuild and restore the distillery and other buildings, earning recognition in 1980 as a National Historic Landmark. This is the home of Maker's Mark today, and they invite you to visit. That's the gist of the content on the left side of the bottle's label. But how did Bill Samuels actually go about creating a new bourbon recipe after burning the family heirloom and figuring out the basics with his advisory panel? Time, as stated before, is an ingredient in bourbon and you can't rush it. But the mash bill, or list of grains used in bourbon production, can and does vary. It wasn't until 1964 that a legal definition of bourbon was codified by the United States Congress, but production in the Kentucky tradition was well understood and comprised mostly of corn since it was cheap, therefore plentiful, and fermented well. Rye was and still is often used as a grain to add flavor to bourbon whiskey, and rye lends a general spiciness and bite to the finished spirit, even after extensive aging. It was the bite of the rye that Bill Samuels was really looking to eliminate to create a soft-spoken bourbon. So he experimented with different grain mixes by baking bread as an analogous way of determining what an aged whiskey from each mix may yield. He explained it this way, Imagine two loaves of bread, one made from whole wheat, the other from rye. Isn't the bread made from wheat lighter, milder, and more gentle on the palate? Bill Samuels Jr., the founder's son, was quoted as saying, I remember my mom baking over 150 loaves of bread. We were surprised that it was the Red River wheat, a ground cover, that was the clear favorite. So, Maker's Mark was born as a wheat whiskey. But there was some luck in the timing. When they distilled their first batch in 1953, they were able to buy naturally dried barrels from the Independent Stave Company, as there had been a general oversupply in the industry post-World War II. So, Maker's Mark got barrels in the manner they needed. But now, let's talk about why this bourbon isn't named Bill Samuels in the way Jim Beam or Jack Daniels carries the family name for the brand. Bill felt strongly that they should abandon this practice of naming the product for a family, so it's said that his wife Margie named the brand. Margie had a collection of fine English pewter, and metalsmiths of old would stamp their finest pieces with their maker's mark, a type of brand in the original sense and thus, Maker's Mark was the name chosen for the whiskey brand itself. From this name, Bill created the logo, or his own Maker's Mark, for the brand. He started with a star for the Star Hill Farm, added an S for his family name, and the Roman numeral four to denote that he was the fourth generation of distiller in the family. Enclosing it in a circle gives us the symbol that adorns every bottle of the spirit today. It would be later on that Bill Samuels Jr. would discover his father was actually a sixth-generation distiller, but they left the logo alone, though swapping the order of the V and I likely wouldn't have caused much concern. The bottle design is credited to Margie Samuels, who was the first woman inducted into the Bourbon Hall of Fame. In addition to a pewter collection, she collected 19th-century cognac bottles, many of which were sealed with wax. The red sealing wax was thus her idea, borrowed from cognac bottles of old. The shape of the bottle was also her design, and I read accounts that she mocked it up using paper mache. Margie also gets credit for the label, insisting on simple black ink in a hand-lettered style, originally on a hand-torn paper edge, now replicated by die cutting. But it's the wax seal that makes Maker's Mark stand out, and each is hand-dipped to this day, as they were in the beginning. The first bottles were hand-dipped in 1958 when the brand first became available, and with some forethought, the first bottle produced was kept, the label being hand-signed by the handful of employees at the time. It looks nearly identical to the bottle I bought for this tasting. Maker's Mark was a small brand at the start, with sales mostly confined to Kentucky for the first 25 years or so. Bill Samuels rather famously felt that advertising or promoting too heavily was a bit rude and the product's merits would be enough for it to find a following. That was mostly true, but I'm a marketer by trade and I always think of the old adage I read in my youth that went, He who has a thing to sell and goes and whispers in a well is not so apt to get the dollars as he who climbs a tree and hollers. They did do some advertising rather early on, though. A campaign I think was quite brilliant, though some people have panned as a terrible idea. The story goes that when Maker's Mark was first introduced, it sold for about $7 a bottle, when $4 tended to be the going rate for a bourbon. At a small holiday party Bill and Margie hosted, they naturally served their bourbon, and one of their guests commented that it tasted expensive. Bill Samuels apparently replied that indeed it was, and thus the campaign featuring a photo of the bottle and the tagline, It tastes expensive, and is, was born. In 1973, Maker's Mark hired local Kentucky ad agency Doe Anderson to work on the brand, and they've been earning their keep having a good run ever since. It's now 49 years later, as of this recording, that the agency has been working with the brand. So, good on them. The event that really can be viewed as a breakout moment for Maker's Mark has a date applied to it. It's August 1st, 1980, when the Wall Street Journal featured Maker's Mark in a front-page article describing it as a model of inefficiency by choice. The subhead also noted that the brand denied Fidel Castro, who was a fan and apparently wanted a case of the bourbon. This was 1980, and communists weren't really our thing in the United States. The article talked about how Maker's Mark went against the grain, growing market share while bourbon overall declined, and doing so by distilling just 19 barrels a day. The phone started to ring after the article ran, from consumers looking to find a bottle locally, and potential buyers of the brand. Yet in the third paragraph of the article, Bill Samuels says of suitors, I just won't talk to them. This stance didn't last long. Hiram Walker bought the brand the following year in 1981. I don't know what they paid, but the deal must have been right. By 1980, Bill Samuels Jr., the founder's son, had been president and CEO for five years already. While the junior Samuels seemed to have been destined to take over the company, he didn't start right away. He graduated from Berkeley as an engineer, worked on rocket engines, and even went to law school for a while before working by his father's side at the distillery. Bill Samuels Jr. would feature in a lot of the company's advertising during his tenure, when most was magazine print. In fact, the ads were often long-winded and wordy in the form of a letter signed by Samuels Jr., In 1983, the industry publication Ad Age ran a feature on Maker's Mark's ads described as bad in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way. Indeed, many marketing professionals thought they frankly sucked, but consumers seemed to like them well enough as the brand continued to grow. Maybe that was further proof of what the Wall Street Journal said about Maker's Mark going against the grain. The Samuels family remained deeply integrated in Maker's Mark even under Hiram Walker's ownership who didn't seem to interfere with a good thing. As continues to be the case today, conglomerates merge and shuffle brands. Hiram Walker was acquired by Allied Dometic in 1987. Then Pernod Ricard ended up with Maker's Mark in their portfolio when they absorbed Allied Dometic. In 2005, Pernod Ricard sold Maker's Mark to Fortune Brands, which would eventually become part of Beam Suntory, who owns Maker's Mark today. Jump back to 2004, and a second still was added to increase production. Then in 2010, Maker's Mark, which arguably was always a premium brand, released their first brand extension, Maker's 46. It's the same Maker's Mark just finished in a barrel with another 9 months or so that has had 10 seared French oak staves added to it. It's truly a finished process and was successfully launched without diminishing the appeal of the original Maker's Mark. The following year, in 2011, the brand broke through the 1 million case barrier. Then they had a rare misstep in 2013 – In February of that year, in an effort to increase supply, they announced the reduction of bottling strength from 45% ABV to 42%. The backlash was instant and within a week, the Samuels tweeted, You spoke, we listened, and we're sincerely sorry we let you down. They were looking to increase volume production by about 6% the savings they would have gotten from proof reduction. In 2015, the brand announced a $67 million investment, which notably included the addition of new warehouses, and a third, identical still, to increase capacity while sticking to their time-tested process. Bill Samuels Jr. retired in April of 2011, turning leadership over to his son, Rob Samuels, whose signature adorns the right side of the bottle's label under the descriptor grandson of the founder. Maker's Mark has some additional brand extensions, a cask strength and 101, that's 101 proof, plus a few special bottles, but they've stuck very much to bourbon. As of 2019, the most recent reliable data I can find, the brand sold 2.4 million 9-liter equivalent cases. But this was what I refer to as the before times, before the COVID-19 pandemic, had definitely changed things, so I'm sure sales have fluctuated. So that's the story of the brand. Now, onto how it's made. Maker's Mark is Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, so that means it's made in Kentucky and meets the US legal requirements for whiskey, which is distilled from fermented grain at no more than 95% ABV, has aged at least two years to be classified as straight, it actually is aged for around six, and is bourbon, meaning it has a mash bill of at least 51% corn and aged in charred new American oak barrels. It's also handmade, which is true. The mash bill is 70% corn, 16% wheat, and 14% malted barley. They use a vintage roller mill to mill their grain, not the hammer mill to avoid the harsh flavors or bitterness. The water used is all limestone filtered water from the distillery site, one of the reasons Bill Samuels chose the site in the first place. For fermentation, Maker's Mark uses their own strain of yeast that they constantly propagate, and an interesting tidbit of their yeast propagation is they use a dash of hops in the mix when expanding a batch. The hops originally seem to have been used as an antimicrobial agent, and probably isn't needed any longer, but the distillery still uses them. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Most people, even those working at the distillery, doubt the addition of hops to the yeast has an impact on the bourbon's flavor, but nobody wants to seem to risk that it may. Fermentation is done in dozens of large 10,000 gallon vats, and lasts about three days. These vats, some are original cypress wood, which is good because the cypress doesn't have an impact on flavor, but most of them are stainless steel. Distillation is done with the three copper column stills. The bourbon is twice distilled, the first pass at about 60% ABV, with the second distillation yielding a 65% ABV New Spirit, well below the bourbon maximum of 80% ABV. Makers goes into barrels at 55% ABV, and the barrels are still supplied by Independent Stave Company using outdoor aged wood that's experienced at least one summer to reduce the tannins in the wood. The barrels each receive a number three char. Aging is done on site in more than 40 warehouses, each of which are six stories tall, allowing for barrel rotation throughout the years. This rotation allows makers to control the temperature and therefore the interaction of the spirit with the wood as higher floors are hotter than the lower floors. Thus the barrels rotate from top to bottom. Each warehouse is also painted black to cover the presence of naturally occurring fungus that's present around most aging spirits. The distillery can produce about 400 barrels a day, a huge jump from the 19 barrels a day in 1980, and it's reported that they have nearly one million barrels aging. Aging is done to taste, but the brand says the barrels average six to seven years, And barrels are batch blended for bottling with filtering and proofing down to 45% ABV for bottling with plenty of human tasting and quality control steps along the way before being labeled and hand dipped in 400 degree red wax, just as it has always been done. And the labels, that's another great touch. They're die cut on an original 1935 Chandler & Price letterpress. My father was a commercial printer for his entire career, and he used to operate a Heidelberg brand press that was similar. While no longer used for printing the labels, the old press does a fine job of pressing a cutting die into sheets of printed labels to replicate the original hand-torn look that Margie Samuels wanted. And that is the inefficient way that Maker's Mark is made. And now on to cocktails and consumption. I'm drinking this neat, but Maker's does a good old fashioned as well. Drink it as you like. You buy the whiskey, you enjoy it as you prefer. So in summary, what do I think of Maker's Mark? I'll be honest, it's a great brand story. Drinking the spirit, it's a little uh, hot on the palate for me. Maybe it's the proof. Maybe it's because I'm recording this rather early in the morning. It has mellowed as I've had more. Uh, It's got a nice flavor. I've had several other wheat whiskeys or wheat bourbons. Maker's Mark, though, is probably a great brand story. Something that is implied that you don't really realize in the whole story as I was doing the research. The Samuels family, they were pretty well-to-do. And Maker's Mark was essentially a hobby job for bill samuels to start with it takes a lot of wealth to be honest to one buy a 200 acre farm with an old distillery invest in repairing it and restoring it and then distilling a bunch of whiskey and putting it into barrels for six years you've got to be able to wait that out it was not a commercial enterprise from the get-go in the sense that it had to pay for itself and I did read that the brand didn't even turn a profit until about 1975. So Maker's Mark it exists because the founders had the the wherewithal or the financial resources to stick it out and, and create a, a soft-spoken bourbon, something that was expensive from the get-go, that they really wanted to kind of stand behind. What is interesting, though, I will say is today... I paid, I don't know, less than $30 for this bottle. I think 27 bucks. That feels like a value to me. It's a little more expensive than some, but a far cry from the prices that some other premium American whiskeys and bourbons is charging these days. So that's going to do it for this episode of Liquor in the Core Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Tell your friends. Show notes are on liquorinthecoreconnoisseur.com. You can find the show on your favorite podcast platform. I'm also active on social media. Look for me on your favorite platforms. I tend to be active mostly on Instagram and Facebook currently. I also love hearing from my listeners. So if there's a spirit you want me to feature in the future episode, please do reach out. And as always, thank you for listening.